Welcome to Happiness 2.02 podcast. I'm your host, John Tuckums, founder, author, World Government Summit participant, and Forbes featured TEDx speaker, an inquisitive human who loves root knowledge. Happiness 2.02 is a mental health show for entrepreneurs that provides the full human cognition and the full breathing oxygen tools to rapidly shift states of mind and increase energy. Podcast guests include organization founders, world-renowned executives, MDs, PhDs, and remarkable leaders who have incredible stories and are helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen. You're listening to Happiness 2.02. This is your host, John Tuckums. You're listening to episode 12 with Dr. Oren Davis. Dr. Oren Davis is a keynote speaker, earned the first ever doctorate in positive psychology, is the principal consultant at Quality of Life Laboratory Consulting, is a research scientist, and is a leading authority on experiencing flow, creativity, and self-actualization. While you're listening to this podcast, if anything stands out to you as thought-provoking or remarkable, take a screenshot and write down what you've heard from Oren. Post the insight on social media, text the idea to a friend, or email what you've learned to a family member. Get this information out there. Without further ado, episode 12 of Happiness 2.02 podcast with Dr. Oren Davis. Oren, time is a finite resource. Underlying everything that you do across your life, your leadership, your consulting, your speaking engagements, why do you do what you do? Ultimately, what drives you at your core? I think the main drive is maximizing human potential. Uh, it's something I got interested in as a kid. Uh, just understood as soon as I figured out what human potential was and the idea that, you know, if we can each maximize our human potential, we're able to make a unique contribution to the world that I wanted to find out what's the algorithm for that. How do we, how do we each do that or what's the mechanism behind it? And I spend really all of my time doing that in a bunch of different ways. I do some of that, you know, as a professor, I do some of that as a consultant. I do some of that as a scientist and I, you know, I share some of that, you know, in leadership and writing. And was there a really point in your life that uh, you realized that you really wanted to uh, focus on figuring out how to maximize uh, human potential? Uh, maybe been in high school or elementary school, or middle school that, uh, you know, that you really identified something that you really were intrigued about. Uh, when did that start for you? I think it, I think it started for me as a kid. Uh, part of that is just borrowing from, you know, my, my Jewish roots. Uh, I'm Orthodox Jewish and, uh, you know, I grew up, I grew up religious. And the idea, uh, one, of, one of the principles, uh, you know, coming, coming up through the religion, and by the way, you'll find this across uh, almost all major religions. Um, and I say almost because I haven't studied them all. But all the ones that I've studied, they all have this notion that each person is uh, created or is put on this earth for a unique purpose and has a set of abilities that are unique to them and a purpose and uh, possibilities. And I think that that's very strongly embedded in a lot of religions. I think I find a lot of religious people really resonate with that. And um, you're coming across that as a, as uh, an elementary schooler, I think. Uh, was really interesting to me and it was like so what direction am i going to take my life what directions are other people taking their lives how do we how do we maximize this and as you as you went through uh, uh you know elementary school high school middle school did you face adversity as as you're uh, you may have been ahead in terms of figuring out kind of how how you want to uh, apply your life uh you know over this course of this uh, this journey early on was there are moments in time where you had uh, adversity that, that stand out uh, that really helped you to, you know, not only see more potential in yourself, but uh, see more potential in other people's uh, that really brought you along in this journey. 
I think there was a lot of it. Uh, some of it, to be honest, is just too personal and too painful to talk about. Uh, some of the rest of it, however, was uh, a lot of it was people didn't take me seriously. And people, there was a lot of scoffing, you know, what, what, what does a kid know about this? What does a kid think about this? You know, um, when I'm six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, who's who's taking a six, seven, eight, nine, or ten year old seriously? You know, trying to talk to adults about this um, in middle school, high school, wanting to do research on this, and many people, many many established professionals in the field, not really wanting to talk to me, not really wanting to give me the time of day, did not have that kind of network, you know, to draw from, and so. It was it was very very frustrating. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a small town with not much of a library, so I think you know whatever books I could get at the library, um, I, I probably read them you know literally about twenty times and you know memorized them, for lack of a better term. And you know, in that sense, I, I, I did what I could, but there there really wasn't much accessible to me until I got to college. Absolutely amazing. So it's really that that journey of knowing that there's something kind of. Uh, you know, that you figured out that you want to explore further and you're literally reaching out to adults saying, okay, I'd love to engage with you in discussion and uh, you kind of bring these ideas forward. And uh, so it's something that you held on to that was just frustrating that you really wanted to, you know, really to help other people and to um, you really get out outside of yourself uh, to explore this further. And there wasn't a lot of avenues uh, early on. Is that correct? Definitely. And, you know, it was the fact that because I didn't have so much access to good information, you know, I really didn't have good informational hygiene. I didn't know how to determine, you know, we're trying to understand science. There's a lot of crackpot science out there and a lot of crackpot theories out there, especially when it comes to self-actualization and positivity and well-being and things like that. And I didn't, I didn't have anyone guiding me, you know, I mean, besides my parents who were great at this, but still in all, you know, I wanted more than that, a professional to guide me on the informational hygiene to know, what is good information? What's bad information? How do I become a critical consumer of information? And there was just nobody to do that. So I, you know, I, I look at some of my older theories that I had as a kid, and you know, you know, I look, I look back and I'm like those were cute. You know, it would have been nice if I'd have had somebody to help me think them through creatively without giving up on them. Because, you know, I think that all those ideas and all those possibilities still hold a very uh, special place in my heart. But, um, you know, but as they grow, it's like I, I've tried to hang on to the crazy impossibility of some of those ideas. Yeah. While recognizing, you know, the, the, the impossibility of some of them. And, and, you know, it's like it's that you keep it in the tension of, you know, that is impossible, but maybe it's not. I'd love to find out a little bit further just for the audience, uh, just as part of this journey, which is uh, really discovering uh, perhaps even being you know, a lot further in terms of how kids are investing their time and really having some you know, tremendously creative uh, uh, ideas early on. Uh, were there some uh, adult influences that, uh, you know, whether it's your parents or someone else that really helped to, uh, to add momentum to the, the journey that you're already on? I think I'm, first of all, very grateful for having patient parents who um, who always, they, they encouraged me to go for whatever intellectual development I wanted. Um, but I think that, uh, I think there are a couple of things that they did a lot. One of them was that uh, they tried to make sure that I was a critical thinker to the fullest extent possible. And 
and, and number two, and I, you know, I, I really, really have a lot of gratitude to them because I gave them so much pushback on this. Um, they vehemently prevented me from, you know, just diving into the intellectual ivory tower. They really insisted that I need to have, you know, strong doses of reality that I need to get out into the real world and I need to, uh, I can't, I can't bury my nose in books or video games or whatever else all the time. Um, needed to be social activities, needed to be athletic activities. And those things would go on to be, you know, major inspirations for me later on that, that I would, you know, draw experiences and theories from. And they really, they really made sure that I got a wide breadth of experiences, uh, even though I really just wanted to go back to my books. Yeah, definitely a, a strong, strong influences in your life and really to help to round out knowledge, which uh, you were able to, to leverage in the future. If we can shift gears a little bit uh, now that uh, uh, you've had, uh, you know, this uh, amazing journey of being able to, you know, actually turn what you, you know, conceived as a child or some of the earlier theories and then into practice. Uh, and now you can actually do it as part of uh, your day-to-day life in terms of um, you know, research, consulting, uh, and now this is part of your daily routine. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what experiences to date now that you've come on this amazing journey uh, that kind of gets you into that those peak states, those flow states that uh, uh, that I imagine now that you're working on stuff that you always wanted to work on become much more easy? So I'll back up and say flow is not a state. Um, it, it w- that was an early theory about Chick-Sit behind. He kind of figured that it, it, it was a state, but really... It's that that sort of state concept is it's a bit of a misnomer. It's the idea that we have that we can, it's an experience. It's got very fuzzy boundaries. It's not something that we can go into and out of at will, despite what some crackpots are claiming these days. Yeah. Um, it, we, we can't do that. Um, what we can do is we can create the conditions that make us more likely to have a flow experience, and that, that increases the likelihood. It's never a guarantee. And uh, for me, uh, I think that uh, we, we, also, we also place an overemphasis on trying to find flow. It's a great thing. You know, I wrote a dissertation on it. Uh, I love it. I love experiencing it. But I find that sometimes the places where I find flow are the places where I'm able to really access a good challenge. And so for me, a lot of the time uh, where I experience flow is when I'm going straight for the theory, when, I, when I've got some kind of problem that, you know, for this moment looks impossible, but I know that either it isn't or that it can't be, uh, or that there's there's something I'm missing. Even, even, if, uh, even if I'm just reducing the order of magnitude of its impossibility, you know, that's something. And when I've got that challenge in front of me, and I think it's a meaningful problem, so I've chosen the problem, and I've got, you know, really the goal of, I've got a clear goal of what I want to do with this problem. I just want to play with this thing. It's it's an autotelic goal, which is you know one of the one one important aspect for flow. It's autotelic that I, I just want to play. I'm here to play, and I think you know my goal is to make this problem change in some noticeable way, um, whether it's to change the problem space, reduce the reduce the complexity, or maybe even increase the complexity so I can reduce it later. But having that and knowing that I need to go after that uh, and that I can really bring my A game to it. Those are my best experiences, and that's really where I experience flow uh, as uh, as a self actualization engineer. And for the audience, you talked about uh, you know experiencing flow, and it's really it's never guaranteed. It's really about creating those con- uh, conditions that you described. Can you 
you know, it's sometimes it's hard to put into words because, a, you know, a personal experience is so different from, from one person to another. Uh, can you describe for, you know, just how you describe it to an audience, uh, you know, what experiencing flow is like in terms of breathing or in terms of creativity, uh, you know, when you're in those moments where you're working on a really, really hard challenge, really good challenge. And uh, you know, if you can put that into words, that'd be tremendous. Sure, I think that you know everything clears um, from from my attention, from my experience when I'm when I'm when I'm experiencing flow. Only only the items that are relevant to what I'm doing are are there. Like I could be out walking in the street, but like you know, cars, sidewalks, those things they they all just get processed in the background. Um, and I don't really, I don't really notice them. Other people walk by. Um, none, none of those things. Like you know, obviously you you process them, but but they don't matter to me at all. The only thing that matters to me is is the is the question I'm working on, or the problem I'm working on, and you know, I'm, everything else I'm doing, everything I'm doing is about that. Um, whether it's you know, it's because I'm walking, because I like to walk and think. You know, the walking, I'm not thinking about the walking. The walking is just to you know, keep things moving, uh, to keep me moving. But the, the movement is all about, you know, the movement of the problem. And I'm just moving along with the problem. Every, everything is about, you know, trying to generate the solution. And it's that unitary focus on, you know, a single topic or a single goal, really to the exclusion of all else. And I, and, uh, I think that's, that, that unitary focus and just this desire to stay there, to stay with the problem, to, to play with it. And, and there's, there's no other place I want to be. There's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Um, there really is nothing else in the world at that moment except, except what I'm working on. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Just to, uh, you know, for the audience to imagine that, that focus where you can just hone in and there's no other place you want to be. Uh, sounds absolutely amazing. Um, if we can shift gears a little bit now into uh, what are some of the small things that you do to maintain happiness or well-being uh, on a on a day-to-day basis? I think you, you highlighted uh, you know walking is a part of that uh, that process uh, that you know you're moving with the problem and that helps with creativity. But what are some of the small things, maybe at the start of the day or end of the day or, or during your day, that uh, you incorporate uh, to maintain happiness or well-being? Uh, so there are a couple things. One of them is, you know, I've gotten to know myself and I, I've gotten to understand uh, what my mind and body want and need. And so uh, I've, I've definitely put in the time to learn those things and then to uh, go with them. So the first thing is um, mornings are always, you know, they, I always kick them off. You know, as I mentioned, I'm religious, so I kick it off with prayers every morning. And, you know, prayers, prayers is a good time to meditate. Prayer is a time um, to be aware of yourself, but uh, also, you know, just to be aware of uh, something higher than yourself and to recognize that you're part of something much larger. Um, I call it, uh, I, I call that thing God, uh, you know, being religious. And, I, you know, I personally believe in God, but even for those who don't, you know, that, that morning, that, that, that meditation, that, that moment of prayer can be just a moment of connection with um you know, just a little larger universe of the larger plane of existence out beyond you. And uh, that's one of the things that comes also. Um, I just have a morning workout. Um, I just got to get moving in the morning. So, and I also like to, I also like to get that going. 
uh, almost every day go for a walk mm. and I love to walk. So that's, that's the thing. And, uh, you know, on days when I really can't go out, you know, I grew up in the Northeast, pretty bad winter sometimes. So I can't go out, but like I'll find myself like walking around my room because I, I need to get moving somewhere. So knowing that I need that, um, also knowing, uh, that I need to step away sometimes and that I just need to go take a break and respect the fact that I got to take a break. And I'm a bit of a gamer. So uh, do enjoy video games, and and that is one of the ways that I can actually like step away because I do experience some flow in video games. So it gives me the opportunity to step away, and knowing that I can step away, come back, um, and managing my energy that way, knowing when I've gotten a little overloaded and I just need to step back and you know blank out for a while and you know recharge and do something that recharges me. So there's that. Uh, also, just um, managing, you know, liquid intake, food intake. Um, trying to manage, trying to manage those things. Uh, I tend to drink a lot, but uh, when I say when I say that, I mean actually just liquids. I actually don't drink alcohol at all. But uh, just keeping just keeping that balance uh, inside. I also tend to like it cold. Again, grew up in the Northeast, so uh, try to try to stay in a cold environment. Uh, it works for me. What can I say? Yeah, no, that's great. I love the, the idea of just having a little bit of a cold environment keeps you on your toes, so to speak. Um, absolutely amazing. Uh, I'd love to uh, find out more about uh, some of the projects that you're currently walk, working on or initiatives uh, that, uh, that you'd like to highlight to the audience. Sure. So one of the things I mentioned before is that flow is not a state, and the, that's been pretty clearly proven in the research but we still talk about it as a state, mostly as a matter of convenience. So, you know, what's funny is, you, you know, you see the you see the crackpots and the experts both talking about it as flow. Pretty much the way you can tell the difference between them is that the crackpots are talking about triggering it. The experts are just talking about it as a state because we've got no other better way to put it. So one of the questions is, even though we all know it's not, we all know it's not by now. We, we figured that out about 10, 15 years ago. That's when the evidence first started coming out. But... How do we demonstrate that? How do we prove it? How do we map it? How do we model it? So, uh, and then, you know, if flow is not a state, and I'm just calling it an experience, like, is that really the best word for it? Is that really the best descriptor for such a complex phenomenon? And we, we treat flow, especially in research, we treat it as just like a set of nine, 10 variables that are linked in some kind of linear fashion. And that's the best we've been able to do so far. And I don't want to knock that because, the, that, you know, that's that's amazing that we've managed to get that far in 55 years. But um, we've got a long way to go. And we've definitely figured out that that's just a first approximation. So what is flow really? You know, Chicksetty High brought us to the mountaintop, but we've, we've seen, we've now seen that there is another mountain ahead of us. And what, what is that? That's one line of work that I do. Uh, another one uh, similar to that one is what is microflow? Because uh, something that Csikszentmihalyi theorized uh, back in 1975, nobody really developed it. Um, and, uh, I discovered when I became his grad student, and the theory of flow developed, but microflow did not. So I updated the theory of microflow back in 2010. Mm -hmm. But you know, just as we're trying to understand flow, I'm trying to understand microflow. And the way I explain microflow is that it's basically the optimal experience under suboptimal conditions. And you know, what what happens when the conditions just aren't conducive to experiencing flow as fully and deeply as we might like? And you know, just seeing flow as a continuum 
and uh, how we can, I, I think microflow has major implications for how we can make the most of our time, so I'm looking into that. Uh, a third line of work that I'm on is uh, creativity. I do a lot of work on creativity. By the way, so did Chick Sydney High, so you know, he trained me to be a flow researcher and a creativity researcher. And Gene Nakamura, you know, also my other advisor, also kind of promoted me to think about my, my thinking to look at socio-cognitive and developmental relationships. So I look at creativity. How do we become creative people? How does somebody come up with a creative idea? So sort of like, what's a creative person and how do we generate creative ideas? That's, that's most of my research these days. Fantastic. And um, uh, if you could elaborate, too, as well, that, uh, you know, the research that you're doing, you also have opportunities to apply it directly inside of organizations. Uh, is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, a lot of a lot of institutions and a lot of organizations are trying to figure out employee engagement. And mainly the reason why they want those things is they really want their employees to be creative, to do good work. And the work that I do on creativity directly relates to uh, high performance. And the work I do on flow relates directly to employee engagement and to uh, workplace culture and even to things like hiring. Uh, I, I get people asking me all the time since I actually work on this, you know, Dr. Davis, how do we, how do we get creative people? How do we hire creative people? Uh, it turns out there's not a simple answer to that, but it's something I work on and it's something I help companies with. But uh, there's also just this, this leads to general hiring strategy. How are you writing the job description? How are you designing the job? Uh, how are you assessing candidates? And believe it or not, this actually has major implications for diversity, equity, and inclusion, because the way in which you do that uh, has a major implication for the conditions in the office under which people are able to experience flow. I mean, you know, just as an example, when people are feeling like uh, a token minority in a workplace, it's gonna be very hard for them to get engaged to maximize their performance, to really you know put everything in, because they're spending a decent amount of energy dealing with their minority status. I totally understand. That's absolutely amazing, and and these are you know you know this is what the the world needs today in terms of you know how to find that next level of performance. Uh, you know, there's a lot of changes that are going on uh, for many reasons around the world at this stage. And uh, these are like these are fundamental questions that, that you're tackling and being able to work with organizations. Uh, to me, it was fascinating, too, that you talked about, you know, even the job description, uh, aside from, you know, interview process. But uh, imagine that there's, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different points across the organization where you can add tremendous value. Uh, if you could share a little bit with the audience, uh, that'd be great. Sure. So the job description goes right along with the job design, but actually one of the biggest impediments to high performance in the workplace is trying to for, trying to shoehorn a person into a job. And so you know what will yeah. happen is we write a really vague job description, and and from this vague job description you get vague interview and assessment criteria. And then, you know, you, you go through these different processes, it gets more and more vague, and at a, at a certain point, you're just hiring based on a gut feeling, which, you know, that's not going to work out well often. Uh, sometimes you get lucky, though. And then, in the meantime, you, you get this person, and in the meantime, there is this job that they need to do. Now, you didn't really think about what that job is, so now you've got, you've got a body, and you've got a job. You didn't really think about how they go together. Only now you actually have to make them go together because this stuff's got to get done. And now you're trying to shoehorn the person into the job, and it's it can be it can be a tight fit, it can be a bad fit, 
Um, and it might just, it might be something that can, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, be manageable or work out. But if you're not getting high performance, you're not getting, you know, innovation, you're not getting development, you're not getting growth, not of the employee and not of the company. And the fact of the matter is that every employee, you know, bottom to top in a company promotes the growth and innovation of a company, or at least has the potential to, if the uh, employer is going to allow it. So changing the hiring process, writing the job description, really thinking about what are the deliverables here? What does this person need to produce? And what are the restrictions on that production? Mm -hmm. And when you, when you start just right there, like, for example, you know, what, are they, what efforts do they have to coordinate with other people or, you know, what, what, what uh, company standards exist? But, you know, the, the less that you can tell people how to do it, and, and, you know, the, less, the more control that you give them, the more they're able to conform the job to themselves. And when they do that, they're using their strengths at work. They're using their best abilities. They're at their they're they're at their most productive times. They're able to keep their routines and their own routines, and then integrate that with others. And you give them the job control. You give them the opportunity to create their own meaning out of the work. And from that, they're able to get really high performance. You need to write a job description that's flexible enough for the right person to to manipulate into something that fits them well but also clear enough that whoever comes in, they know what they're getting. For sure. And their, their expectations align. That's absolutely amazing that uh, we described, uh, you know, enabling them to have uh, much more control uh, once they've gotten through the process and screening on the front end. And that enables them to have, and it's really within the confines or the structure of the organization that they're working for to really define that creative meeting, which I imagine, you know, there's that, uh, it's almost like a cycle that uh, uh, allows them to do what they want to do. And then they can even carve out even more meeting inside of the, inside of the, the role in the organization. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, Oren, where can people find you across uh, social media or across, uh, uh, across locations for your work? So I'm on Twitter and Medium as Dr. Oren Davis. And the, the trick there is spelling my name as O-R-I-N, less common spelling. But uh, Dr. Oren Davis on both Twitter and, me, and uh, Medium. So that's my blog. And I do write about some of this stuff. And uh, I'm definitely very open source about, you know, the advice that I give. So, you know, often the higher the higher level summaries of advice that I give to clients is on the web, is on the website. It's on the, uh, it's on the blog. And uh, like how to build sustainable diversity is help the companies build their diversity. I put a general overview on the blog so people can see it. I built up a cheat sheet for uh, you know diversity and Im improving those things. Uh, how to write a job description, how to interview, you know what, what kinds of strategies uh, people can use for assessment and sorting. Uh, and I also have a website. Uh, my laboratory is the Quality of Life Laboratory. So that's qllab.org, qllab.org, and uh, people can check out our research, uh, some of the folks I work with. And, uh, you know, some of the talks that I've given, uh, that, you know, this, this, uh, this podcast will be up on the website, uh, once it comes out. So, you know, links to different talks I've given and, uh, people are always welcome to get in touch with me through the website or uh, through uh, medium or Twitter. So, uh, don't tweet as much as I'd like, but, I'm looking to do that more in the, in the coming year. Fantastic. And do you have any parting words for the audience, either from an individual perspective or from an organization perspective? 
You know, when people ask me what my number one piece of advice is, I think um, I think know thyself is definitely at the top of my list because I find that people really don't take the time to know themselves. And you know, when I'm doing individual coaching or executive coaching, I often find that you know, even at the executive level, you'd be shocked to find how many executives have not really gotten to take the time to know themselves, their drives, their motivations, the habits they love. And when you look at the successful leaders that are out there and the, and the successful people that we often want to emulate, the first thing we learn about them is that they really know how they, how they work. And so what I, what I would tell everybody is know yourself. And, you know, I, and I will say that the number one objection I get to knowing themselves, sometimes we're, we're afraid to discover that we're not really that great and we're not really that awesome. And, you know, I've, I've heard uh, more, more, uh, negative responses to that. But what I would tell you is everybody's created with personal awesomeness. Mm. And it's something I've seen over and over again. People, people will say, I don't have that. I don't have that. You know, 20, 30 minutes later, you know, they figured out that they do. So anybody who thinks that they don't have that, you know, spend the time, put in the time. You might need to part a few curtains of negativity and that's okay. But uh, I can pretty much guarantee you that behind them, is a uniqueness and a combination of strengths that nobody else has got. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. Orrin, thank you for your leadership, your consulting, your speaking engagements, and all the happiness oxygen you bring to the world. And a tremendous thank you to all the listeners. As always, this has been your host, John Tuckums. You have made it to the end of the podcast. It's your host, John Tuckums. I want to take this moment to sincerely thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the time you're taking to invest in your life. And if you gained something valuable from this episode and want to give me value somehow, I would tremendously appreciate if you went to Apple Podcasts, iTunes. If you have an Apple product where you listen to this podcast and leave this show a review, you are free to send me a message or email. Contact information is in the description below. Thank you again for listening and thank you for your contributions in helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen.